You are listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Gregory Haddock. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. We will be featuring a series of 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. We will be releasing one interview each week over the course of the next five months here on this podcast feed. This episode's guest is Michael Cokert. Michael has been researching raptor species for over 40 years and has served in multiple capacities for the Raptor Research Foundation. He has been interested in wildlife biology since he was a child, but admits he wasn't initially interested in birds of prey. But it didn't take long after his first impression in the Snake River Canyon that he would come to proudly call himself a desert rat. Michael was instrumental in researching and understanding the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. His work was pivotal to NCA borders established by the BLM. He met Morley Nelson through his predecessor, John Beecham, and would end up spending the next 30 years learning from and spending time with the Snake River Canyon legend himself. A good place to start off, I think, is, you know, from the beginning. Like, I'm wondering if you have a childhood memory or something. Like, what first got you interested in, in biology or the natural world? Or, you know, what's like the seed of that interest? Okay, well, this goes back to, back to at least when I was 10 years old or so. At that time, I was interested in, you know, I was raised on a farm. So I was interested in animals. And when I was 10 years old, I, you know, had these aspirations of being a veterinarian because they handled animals and everything like that. And that sort of evolved by the time I was a senior in high school and I was looking at going to college and where, what kind of major I should strive for or anything like that. I had narrowed it, I had actually added wildlife biology as another possibility. But I still thought, well, I still want to be a vet. So I started out uh, my undergraduate in pre-vet. And in 1965, I took a trip, and that's, I was raised in Indiana, so I took a trip to the Northeast. And when I was in the Green Mountains of Vermont and enjoying the wild atmosphere and, and watching the people that were in the natural resources, we were staying in parks and things like that, and saw what they were doing, I just decided, and then that was between my freshman and sophomore year in college, boom, the light went on. I want to be a wildlife biologist. Went back, changed my major, the rest is history. What did you see in the Green Mountains? Like, were, you know, was there like a wildlife sighting you had or was there a moment? Well, I that... was just watching the people that were with, you know, in the parks and in the, <clears throat> in the national forest doing, just going about their business and being in outdoors in the wild. Um, that seemed to me to be just something I wanted to do. And like I say, the rest is history. I uh, got my bachelor's degree in uh, wildlife management at Purdue University. And the reason I went to Purdue is I lived six miles from the Purdue campus, so it was a no-brainer then. And then it came time to go to graduate school or get a job, 
one of the two. So jobs were getting few and far between in the, in the late 60s in wildlife. And so I thought, well, I guess uh, I'll try to go to grad school. And so I applied to grad school. And at that time, I had done a lot of work with the different faculty members at Purdue. And one of the things that I worked on was a wolf moose project up in Isle Royal, which is a national park in the upper reaches of Lake Superior. And at that time, I really wanted to continue my work, and particularly in working in mammals, either predatory mammals or uh, big game. And so I had this opportunity, you know, I applied to grad school and the locus pocus, I got accepted in the University of Idaho. And at that time, there were a couple possibilities. One was a bighorn sheep study in the Middle Fork of the Salmon, and the other one was doing a golden eagle study in uh, the Snake River. And basically what had happened, and I was disappointed, is that the sheep project didn't materialize. And they, I got offered this golden eagle project, and I thought, God, I don't want to work on birds. Well, basically all it took was one, one field season of working with golden eagles and, and uh, to, you know, to use a cliche, the rest is history. So here we are 50 years later, or more than 50, and uh, I'm still here. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, is, is there like a memory that stands out about like your first experience uh, going into the Snake River Canyon, like experiencing that area like early on? I mean, I... I remember my first day in the field uh, with John Beecham, who was my predecessor as a graduate student. This was a two-phase graduate project, and he was uh, finishing it up, and so he worked as my assistant for the first few months to get, basically, to help me get oriented to the, to the area. I remember driving out to the study area, looking out at that vast desert, thinking, oh, how in the world am I going to find my way around this place? And I can remember also later that spring, it was still basically March, I'm sitting out on a rock looking out at the sea of sagebrush. And, and by that, and during those days in the early, in 1970, it was a sea of sagebrush as opposed to now. Looking out at that sagebrush area and wondering, what am I doing here? Because I had come from the deciduous forest of Indiana, and here I am in this parched desert of sagebrush and everything like that. That was in March. By August, I was a full-fledged desert rat, and I haven't left it. I've been there ever since. And there's something that's really magical about the desert. You know, it's not a vast wasteland. It is just in... Well, anybody that's been out there can understand what I'm talking about. I mean, how about the, the work itself and, and the raptors, right? I'm assuming at, at that early stage, you didn't have a sense of like the uniqueness of this area for raptors. No, I, not at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had a sense because uh, one of the you know, first people that I interacted with when I first came to the study area was Morley Nelson. Mm-hmm. And Morley understood this area and so that that those vibes kind of precipitated out and I could feel it that mm. there was something that was uh, that was really unique about this area and when I started working in the field even though I was on golden eagles I noticed that there was a boatload of prairie falcons mm. and and that was one of the things is that 
During that first season, we, I spent a lot of time at Morley's house. And that was one thing that was really, that stuck with me that year and, and for all the 30 years that I knew Morley, is that you felt very comfortable at Morley's place. But, you know, I learned a lot just hanging out with the, you know, the, the Nelson boys and with Morley and all the Raptor files that came to the place. Just that experience. And then when, in 1971, the BLM was starting to pull together the basic information and the report, because at that time, and, and I didn't know this was happening in 1970, but that's when they, were dis that they decided that they were going to do something in memory of Ed Brooker who was the district manager that died in office. I think that a lot was influenced by Morley interacting with them, but they were not decided that they were going to do something as far as establishing the, uh, an area for the, this unique population of, of raptors, particularly the prairie falcons. Then my next year of working in the field, I was providing information to the BLM as far as the eagles were concerned, and I really got a sense that, uh, that something was really moving. And then it really hit in August of 1971 when I attended the dedication of the Snake River Birds of Prey Natural Area. And that's when, they, as Morley called them, all the heroes came out from Washington, D.C. And I can still remember this helicopter landing at what is now called Dedication Point. This big helicopter lands and out steps C.B. Rogers Morton, and the Secretary of Interior, there was Nat Reed, the Assistant Secretary of Interior, and you know, as Morley put it, there was heroes abounding all over the place. And so it really hit home at that time that this is a pretty unique place. Little did I know at that point in time in, 19, in August of 1971 that here we are, you know, almost 50 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> and I would make a career out of it. I'm, I'm really curious about your relationship with Morley Nelson, right? I mean, and I, I think in part because it's like, to me, Morley Nelson is like a legend, like he's larger than mm -hmm. life, like a, a huge celebrity, right? Um, and it's interesting to just hear you say like, oh yeah, I just came in as a grad student and like I was just welcomed into his house, right? I mean, I guess I wonder like, how did you meet him? And was this just normal, like new grad students came in? If you're working in the NSA, you just hang out with Morley? He, Morley, yeah, had... Yeah, like I say, Raptor Files, he was a magnet. They would come, and he always welcomed anybody that was interested in raptors. And he was quite excited about mentoring these young people. And, you know, one of them uh, was Andy Ogden, who was uh, a, a co <clears throat> excuse me, a cohort of mine in grad school that did the Prairie Falcon work. Well, Andy was a high school student that was interested in falconry, and got, you know, came to, was one of the raptor people that hung out at Morley's place. And so I got to meet Morley uh, through John Beecham, who was my predecessor, as I say, on this, on the project. And John had worked, you know, with, uh, and, you know, interacted with Andy and, and Morley and people like that. So I was introduced to Morley from, at that point in time. And then, like I said, little did I know that I would be interacting with Morley for 30 years mm. on various different things. Mm. But that's the thing that impressed me the most is that you could go just drop by Morley's place and just hang out. And you just felt welcome. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was a raptor place. And he'd walk out to the muse. I remember at one point in time, I th and, and, and don't hold me to the numbers here, 
But I think at that point in time, Morley had about 15 golden eagles in, in his muse <laughs> in the back. <laughs> it was impressive. And I remember one time, and, uh, and, and, and I remember Tyler Nelson and I were just talking about it here a few weeks ago, that it, this was in 1974 when uh, Rich, and Rich Howard had worked for me at the time and was working for, for us uh, in, uh, in, in that year. And we were sitting at a uh, picnic table out in Morley's backyard, just talking raptors, of course. And I started hearing this cracking and popping, and I looked up, and here's this brush fire coming right heading for Morley's place. Morley has house set in kind of a draw in, in uh, North Boise. And, uh, and it, was, it was all sagebrush, and, 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 uh, and this is late, this is probably July, you know, fire season. And you talk about scrambling. There was Tyler, myself, Rich Howard, and Morley. And we, the goal was to protect the raptors. And we were grabbing hawks and, and hoses and putting, you know, and fighting fire and everything like that. And it was really unfortunate to look up at the top of the, the, the draw, at the crest of the, of the, of the uh, canyon, so to speak. Um, there was this vacant house, and we just helplessly watched it go up in flames. But we, Morley's birds were saved and everything like that, and Tyler still remembers it. <laughs> so, but anyway, we had a lot of good experiences with Morley. You started off working with Golden Eagles pre-graduate project. Mm -hmm. What happened next? Like, how did it evolve into Prairie Falcons? Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting story. <laughs> because the, yeah, in August of 1971, they dedicated the, what they called the Snake River Birds of Prey Natural Area. And the official land order, and see, that was essentially when I called, it was a land order. It was an executive withdrawal performed by the Secretary of Interior to withdraw the lands for various activities. I won't go into the detail. And so that was October in 1971. And so at that point in time, I was up at the University of Idaho working on my thesis and finishing up and everything like that. And during that time, you know, basically, it was really nothing much going on out in the field. Uh, and, and I kind of, the rumor is, and I'm going to just say the rumor because I wasn't privy to anything. I was up at the University of Idaho trying mm -hmm. to get a degree and trying to figure what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And matter of fact, once I got my thesis done, I was working as a roofer, uh, roofer helping, mm -hmm. working for a roofer. And it was kind of nice not to have to use my brain, just to, just to work in manual labor. But from what I gather, just listening to different people talk, that there was kind of a discussion because the BLM apparently was, hadn't done much since the withdrawal order went through in October. To make a long story endless, as an old friend of mine says, uh, this was May, late May, around Memorial Day. I realized that this was going to be the sixth year when you added up the time that Gary Hickman with Fish and Wildlife Service, John Beecham and myself. So that's basically six years of banding. Here we are in our seventh year, nobody's going to be down there banding the eagles. Nobody looked at them, and I couldn't take it anymore. So I jumped off the roof, grabbed my string of bands, told my boss I was going to be back in a week, and 
headed down to, to the canyon and started banding eagles. I guess old habits are hard to break, but I remember staying at a friend of mine's place, and it's, this is still baffling me how they tracked me down, but their phone rang at two in the morning. I'm staying at somebody's house, and it's ringing on the wall, and for some reason I didn't want, I kind of thought, well, Bob, better answer this thing, because everybody's in bed. And it was um, the state biologist for the BLM in, 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 in Boise here, and he, he basically said, and here I am half awake, he said, you want a job? This floored me. Two in the morning, and how he knew where I was staying and how he got that number, I have no idea. But what had basically had happened, some, something going on that I didn't know about, that caused the BLM to really start looking because one of the biggest criticisms they had was that there was no, they didn't have staff, they had no biologist for the, for the natural area. They, and I guess, you know, in some people's eyes that they weren't doing anything. And next thing you know, I'm the first biologist for the, for the BLM to, to uh, do the work in, in what is now the NCA. So that was, Crazy, <laughs> to say the least. And, and what I've told people over the years is that I literally got drafted for that job. From what I understand, and, and again, uh, this is just my understanding. I you know, wasn't around and I wasn't down here and I wasn't back in Washington. But apparently there was a movement afoot to annex the, what, the natural area, which followed the canyon to the Deer Flat National Wildlife Refuge and turned those lands over to the, to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And, uh, and, and, and if one looks at the land ownership, those, there are islands within the NCA that are Fish and Wildlife Service islands. So we've got actually kind of an overlap. And so it just was a natural to some people that, hey, it makes sense. I mean, you already got islands on the river, you just extend down. And that the natural area at that time was only, uh, it followed the river and it only extended back a half to a quarter mile from the river, from the canyon walls. So I could see where some people thought that that was a natural. Well, and you know, and I guess that caused some concern with the BLM. And so, boom, I was, <laughs> I was drafted as the first biologist for what is now the NCA. So you're saying that you think ultimately they hired you because they felt like the research that you were going to do was necessary in order to maintain that area as a natural area managed by BLM? Well, I think that... It was more of first things first. We're being criticized for not doing anything, and I shouldn't be that harsh, but that was a sense I got. Sure. Probably that's what some people had said at this point, mm -hmm. at, back in, you know, however long ago mm -hmm. that was. But I got the sense that they, they, they wanted to take care of that criticism out of, right out of the chute. So basically my job was to, you know, an interaction of, of, with the BLM and myself was to, okay, we've got this real estate. First thing we do is let's do an inventory of what we have. 
No, we basically had solid information on the eagle population. And Andy Ogden did a great job as far as, you know, enumerating the prairie falcons. And so, and he also had incidental information on the, some of the other species. So that made just sense. The first things first is that we do an inventory of what we have and then go from there. Well, it um, so happened that in the, we, we started that, you know, my first really full year was uh, an intensive effort was 1973. Even though I was hired in the June of 1972, I basically just did some work and I gathered information on the Golden Eagles. And that was basically all I got done as far as working the NCA and then starting to do the planning and everything else that everybody does at those, those points in time. So 1973 was the first full intensive effort. And one of the things that happened was by 1970, well, it was actually, we had a good feeling for it in 73. And it was a helicopter flight that I took with the area manager to do the basic Golden Eagle survey. And when we were going up the canyon, I, we all noticed that prairie falcons were really confronting the helicopter, you know, through what was the natural area that we've expected that. But we also noticed once we got past the natural area and going into the strike, we were still having a lot of prairie falcons coming out and confronting the aircraft. And it wasn't until we got to about Hammett that we didn't see as many. So that put, you know, the, you know, the light bulb turned on in a lot of people's heads that maybe, maybe we got something here that, that this unique population may be more than what's in that, the natural area itself. Mm -hmm. And so by 1974, we, you know, had done and expanded out to go completely up to Hammett to, to enumerate prairie falcons and found out that, yes, there was a, a really remarkable population up, upstream from the old natural area. That was what we did. Mm -hmm. Then, basically, the BLM in 1974 sent a, a, you know, and I'm, it was probably based on some of the preliminary information we got, they asked that we s submit a proposal that would identify the needed research uh, uh, to, for establishing the spatial requirements and the overall habitat requirements of the raptors in this unique stretch of the river. And so we submitted that proposal and it got funded. Or in work began in 1975, and that was that first effort that we conducted from 1975 through, and then with the, you know, the final report coming out in 1979. That report provided information on the spatial requirements of the raptors that we have for our present-day boundary, and that was one of the things that we did. Um, in 1979, in that report, we, we presented what we call the biological boundary. That was the basis that Andrus used for setting up what is now the NCA boundary. Because you could see you have a really, a lot of that land dipped way south around Mountain Home. Well, it made sense, a lot of private land. You don't want to put, you know, this was all, you know, it was contentious enough. 
And what Anders wanted to do, in my opinion, was to eliminate as much private land within the boundary as possible. Because even though they didn't affect private land, you know, if you're within the boundary, people, you know, still, you know, they don't like it. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things that, and Anders was really, did a lot of work as far as, and at that time he was Secretary of the Interior, but uh, was really cognizant of that. But every time that they were making a, a decision with the boundary, he would come back, he would talk with the Dean Bibles, the district manager, and ask if that is acceptable to the research staff. And that's one thing that impressed me about Anders, is his value of scientific information and how he put that on the scales with with political, and you know, with the, the political ramifications and everything like that, mm -hmm. you know, and that's one that thing that just struck me yeah, very much. I, and I can remember, yeah, and this was um, had to be after November of 1980. And that's when he in, in, you know implemented the withdrawal order for what is now the NCA. I remember him. He and Bob Buffington, the state director, were given a presentation, a briefing and everything, and I was on the front row, clear at the end, and I was, you know, I'd been through it all and everything like that, so I was half daydreaming. Got done, he got done with the presentation, and he looked down at the end of that row, and he said, did I cover everything, Mike? No. <laughs> and I thought, what am I going to say? No, cease. <laughs> no, but if that was how... You know, that was the kind of guy he was. He wanted to make sure that everything was solid as as much as it could be. And so, and I, that didn't impress me about him. So, if we back up a little bit, right? You talked about this, you know, this moment where you you got this additional funding to do mm -hmm. this study from 75 to 79. And that was the, the study that eventually determined the boundaries exactly. of the NCA, right? Because that sort of laid out yes. the, the habitat requirements. Mm -hmm. But we're talking specifically about the prairie falcon now, right? So like, I guess what I'm getting at here is like, imagine somebody that just doesn't have the awareness of the uniqueness of this area for prairie falcons mm -hmm. itself. Big picture, what's the significance of that region for prairie falcons? The secretary's package, I'll, I'll just clarify that a mm. little bit, consisted of two major documents. Mm -hmm. One of them was a scientific report, and the other one was the environmental statement, the EIS, mm -hmm. the environmental impact statement. And as you can see, the biological boundary in the report is not exactly the same as the boundary in the EIS, which was based on the negotiations that Anderson involved, was involved in, and it was all based on landlines. Okay, so we have those two documents. In that scientific report, we not only discussed the spatial requirements and the habitat requirements, we also discussed the uniqueness of the area. Because when we did that work in the 1970s, we focused on as much of the other raptor species as we could. And most of the efforts were was focused on golden eagles, prairie falcons, red-tailed hawks, ferruginous hawks, and believe it or not, even common ravens. And we affectionately call them black eagles because from a functional standpoint, they acted like a raptor. And I witnessed a raven taking a ground squirrel, and it was not pretty. 
but they did it. And they are pretty effective predators on ground squirrels. So anyway, that's, that's a side note. But we discussed the uniqueness of the area. One of the things is that if you looked at the density of the raptors in that area, and you're talking in terms of from downstream to upstream, the prairie falcons were just jammed in as, as tightly as you could get. I have personally witnessed two prairie falcon scrapes with young that were 30 meters apart. That didn't take you very long to walk that. What's that mean? In most places, you're talking prairie falcons maybe being six-tenths to a mile apart. And I'm looking at two broods of prairie falcons where I can put them within the eyepiece of my binoculars. Now that's impressive. In that report in 1979, we discussed the density. Prairie falcons averaged, and they still do, about 600 meters between pairs. What does that mean? Well, Mark Hilliard, who was the biologist for the NCA in those days, did a uh, quick assessment and just sent out a questionnaire about what they, you know, their estimated population of prairie falcons and everything like that. Well, the 200 pairs of prairie falcons in the NCA, once it got shaken out, uh, based on that information, you could estimate that about 5% of the world's population of prairie falcons is in that 80-mile 80, 80 stretch of the River Canyon. That is impressive. And then you pile on the other species of raptors in the area and, you know, the, the number of different species. And um, it became quite unique. Became. It was quite unique. Mm. So from that standpoint, uh, it was impressive. From that standpoint, it was, I think, pretty convincing that we had a treasure. And that's one of the things. We keep harping on the fact that if you take prairie falcons out of the, uh, the equation, you still got an impressive collection, of, an aggregation of raptors, but it's not near the significance as, as putting it. And, and, and considering you know, the impact as far as the proportion of the population of prairie falcons in the world. But we can easily say that because prairie falcons are just found only in Western North America, but still pretty impressive. So I, I wonder, I mean, again, this is something you touched on a little bit, but I think it's important enough to, you know, um, go a little bit more in depth into, um, which is this question of like, why? What is it about this area that makes it so unique for prairie falcons? Because that's connected to this research you did and then the decision to extend the boundary, right? Yeah, and it's, uh, I think that, you know, Morley Nelson used to talk about it and this whole juxtaposition of habitat, both foraging habitat and nesting habitat, and productive soils, and the whole myriad of conditions that just warrant for this impressive population of prairie falcons. And first of all, the soils on the north side of the river are deep, windblown silts, loess deposits, as they call them, that is that's very productive. And so, as a result, you have a very 
impressive population of, of ground schools. And in the days when we did this work, they were called Townsend ground schools, now they're called Paiute ground schools. An incredible population of, prairie, of, of ground squirrels, which is a food source for prairie falcons. And prairie falcons are pretty much specialists in this area on ground squirrels. And Morley used to talk about, and he, he, he threw in the, the canyon factor as well. He used to talk about, well, the, the fact that these prairie falcons can pack a you know, big old male 300 gram ground squirrel and they don't have to fly up to their nest. They just drop over the canyon and go in and, and, and feed their young. From an energetic standpoint, nobody ever tested it, but it, it sounded reasonable. And so from that standpoint, but I think it's the, the, the whole, like I say, juxtaposition of soils and productivity of, of the soils in terms of habitat, in terms of prey, and then you've got the raptors. As you, as you know, we've seen a lot of changes in, in that. But uh, I've been out, you know, this year, and we've still got an impressive ground, ground school population. They're, they're still thick. And so we haven't lost that. From that standpoint, it's really unique. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you start looking at the other species, and, and they, you know, benefit from that. And there's... What we did one time is just to look at the number of different raptor species that utilize ground squirrels in their diet. And it's a large, you know, large number of them. Uh, particularly the diurnal raptors mm-hmm. take an incredible, you know, there's a, you know, you've got red tails, frugs, and you've got um, the raven, even, even the black eagle, the raven, and, and, and even golden eagles. Uh, and particularly now that we've lost a lot of the jackrabbit habitat, I should say, you're, you're seeing the, these eagles utilizing ground squirrels a lot more than what we, you know, thought they would. He did this study. I mean, one component of this study from '75 to '79, which, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it sounds like that directly led to this political decision-making process, um, led by Cecil Andrus, who was then the Secretary of the Interior. Exactly. But what exactly did he do at that point, right? Because, I mean, this okay. is right at the point where he's, you know, he lost his cabinet position because... Well, I'll, I'll go back a little sure, bit in sure. history. Yeah. Um, this was 1976, so we were basically finishing up our second field season with the, uh, the work. And what did we, the BLM had, had done? is that one of the objectives of the study was to assess the, you know, the impacts of converting the native range to irrigated agriculture. Because one of the things, as I mentioned earlier about the deep productive soils, well, these d- deep productive soils were highly sought after for irrigated agriculture. When I first started to work with the BLM in the early 70s, there was a lot of land being disposed of through the Desert Land Entry, the Cary Act, and Idaho Admissions Act. And I mean, they, some of these resource areas had two land specialists, reality specialists, that were working these land applications. And it, just to give you an idea, the, the Desert Land Entry Act was one where you could apply, you, and you applied for uh, 360 acres, and you had, I can't remember, a certain amount of time to do what they call prove up. And that was to be able to 
irrigate and have a productive crop on at least 40 acres of that land. Once you did that, you bought that land for a very, very cheap price. I mean, dollars and cents. And so you could see that there was a lot of activity going on, and particularly in the, 60, in the late 60s, early 70s. And so because you know, we were looking at this unique population and this land was being highly sought after for irrigated agriculture, that was one of the major objectives of the BLM is how compatible is irrigated agriculture excuse me, conversion of native range to irrigated agriculture, more specifically. How compatible was this with the unique raptor population? So the first thing that the BLM did was we established a study area. And based on limited knowledge of what prairie falcons do, we recommended to the BLM and they established that the, the study area was basically five miles either side of the river going from basically Walters Ferry to Hammett that's where the where the unique population was so it didn't make sense to be disposing of land and converting it while you're trying to assess the effects of agriculture development unless you're doing an you know what they call adaptive management experiments so the BLM issued a moratorium on any land disposal within that study area. Then we had the election of 1976, and in 1977, Andrews is Secretary of Interior, and at that point in time, he was made aware through, of the fact that our prairie falcons were flying well past that five-mile study area to the north. And so he issued a directive to the state director of the BLM to expand the northern boundary of the study area and the moratorium area to the extent that the prairie falcons were, were, were foraging. So that was the first action that Anders did. The proposed action was to establish the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area through Title VI of the Federal Land Policy and Management Act. And so there was that movement to, to get that moving. Well, uh, 1980 was not a very good year to implement any kind of, of uh, legislation on a contentious action as that because the people that wanted to, to, to farm that obviously weren't happy with the idea that they were going to establish a national conservation area and that the report came out and said that as far as prairie falcons were concerned, the main species that formed the area, granted that certain species like red tails can handle uh, farming, but this conversion, immediate conversion from native range to irrigated agriculture was not compatible with prairie falcons. Uh, so they weren't really happy about that. 1980 was an election year. So you, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure no action, even though Andrus was trying to get some legislation going. And he pretty well, I, I can't speak for him, but I think he pretty well knew that, but you gotta try. Then we know what happened on November 4, 1980. There was a change of administration. He immediately sent out a directive to the BLM. The election was on the 4th, 
He wanted the report done by the 21st, I think, of November. He wanted a land report that a withdrawal, a report that where he would implement the withdrawal of what is now the MCA. And what he did is he implemented that withdrawal. He withdrew the land from the Land Disposal Act and the Hard Rock Mining Law. And I don't think he, you know, I don't think there was much of a row as far as the hard rock mining, but boy, I'll tell you what, the proverbial matter hit the fan when that, that went out. I can't remember exactly the quote, but it's in Stubner's book, that uh, James McClure, who was a senior senator for Idaho at the time, said it's something to the effect that it was the height of arrogance and the total misuse of discretionary authority when Anders implemented that executive withdrawal and uh, used its discretionary authority to do that. So you can see that it was it uh, was not a highly popular thing with you know part of the Idaho population, but it was interesting because in 1979 I attended the one hearing in Washington and I think there might have been one or two in Idaho, in Boise on the withdrawal. Well, at that point, it wasn't the withdrawal; it was the proposed legislation, and it was quite interesting. And you could see that it was extremely polarized. There were people that wanted to preserve and, and maintain the land for the raptors, and there were the other people that wanted to be able to utilize that land for irrigated agriculture. And it was, it was <laughs> contentious. It's, a, it's kind of interesting, because you might be thinking now, okay, where did we go from there? Mm -hmm. How did everything get to where we are now? Mm -hmm. This was 1981, and I, I can remember that particularly the people in the agriculture interest in Idaho weren't happy. I think it was 81 that Mark Hilliard and I got the, the dubious distinction of taking out uh, James McClure. You remember what he thought of the withdrawal, but I'm not going to necessarily, what he was quoted on saying, but again, you can get the quote out of Steve, Steve Stubner's book. But we were to take the chief of, I think it was, uh, he was the chief of the Boise staff for McClure's office here in, in Boise, out to the Bird's Prey area and talk about why the area was so unique, why it's needed to be preserved and everything like that. And I can remember that day vividly because I, both Mark and I rolled up our sleeves and None of the heroes wanted to go out, <laughs> so they sent the, the minions out to do battle. And I can still remember it well, because he was, he, he was a nice guy, and I can't even remember his name anymore. But we had the map setting up there that showed the withdrawal area, and we were going to be able to do due diligence in terms of explaining why it's such a big area and why the prairie falcons need it and everything like that. He looked at the map, and he said, four words. There's no water, or there is no water. And that was it. End of story. Because in 1979, the Swan Falls Agreement was signed, where basically that resulted that the Idaho Power had to be guaranteed three, I think, 3,000 CFS going over Swan Falls. That put the kibosh on any kind of high lift pumping going up to the north of the canyon. 
And that was it. I mean, those simple words, and it was done. Not, you know, not by those words, but that was the true reality. There would be no irrigated agriculture north or anywhere around because there was not enough water to go around. I mean, I was told, and, 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 and this is pretty much of a fact, I think, when I first started to work for the BLM, I was told that basically on paper, if you look at all the water allocations, the Snake River was dry at Milner, at Milner Dam. And technically it is. And it's only by recharge at Thousand Springs and all these others. So you could see almost overnight, the bird's prey issue became a non-issue. As far as, you know, this whole contentious situation because all of a sudden, I'm trying to remember when it, when it all finally blew over, but in the early 81, the BLM was sued over the EIS. It was interesting because the suit did not attack or criticize the scientific end. They were going after the BLM more of a procedural, you know, compliance with NEPA, mm -hmm. all this other stuff. And it's kind of interesting because um, the local federal court ruled in favor of the BLM. So, the, and this was a group called Sagebrush Rebellion Incorporated, and probably familiar with them. Mm -hmm. And again, Stubner covered, he covers a lot of this stuff in that chapter of his, uh, the cool north wind, it's yeah. on the Snake River, Bird's Prey area, mm -hmm. and Morley's involvement and everything like mm -hmm. that. But I, re I read it, and, I, and to my opinion, Stubner covered the facts pretty well. Mm -hmm. And he, he talks about the, you know, the Sagebrush Rebellion, and, 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 uh, and he also, the, Swan Falls Agreement, Snake River Adjudication, all this other stuff that transpired into this thing being pretty much a non-issue. But Sagebrush Rebellion, you know, this was before any kind of finalization of saying, no, we can't do it anymore, there's no water. They sued BLM, and it's, like I said, the local um, federal court ruled in favor of the defendant. They appealed it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and they upheld the local court's decision. So you, compile, you know, pile all those on, and it became pretty much of a non-issue. So then it was time to start working on moving ahead. You know, the area was established, and so we, you know, BLM, it's time for them to move ahead. So, but you know, that sure burn up a lot of time. You know, if the legal fights and everything, but you know, I guess that's the process. The people that opposed it need to have their say and their involvement and everything like that, and I mm -hmm. think they did mm -hmm. to, to a great degree. And it just, like I say, once they realized that you, it couldn't be done. And I, I remember there was a, a real advocate of our work. He was a, a, a he had a rancher that, uh, where we, we kept, we had a trailer on his place and we had our field camp, but he, he told me one time, and he said, you know, the worst thing you could do with those people who want to farm that land is to give it to them. And I think he knew something. He must have really had a sense that there was no water or whatever. He said, the worst thing you could do is give it to them. And it bore out. 
I mean, you, you talk about how it, it, it feels like that, that whole process took a long time and it drug out for a while, but I mean, in another sense, it also seems like, like a lot happened within a very short period of time. You know? I can um, say this, that you know, when, if, when I'm ready to check out of this world, I can look back on my time and I can really feel good about my whole career. Not that I am established, but my involvement in the establishment of the NCA is, is probably the... I, I couldn't outdo it. You know, I was involved in another project that it was of national significance in Argentina. And that was, you know, the banning of monocrotophos and using the, the, the highly toxic organophosphate. And the, the scientific work that went into that, I think, is a, another significant contribution, but it, it, it doesn't hold to the work that's been, you know, of what has been done mm. as far as the NCA. Feeling good about my involvement and mm -hmm. what I did over my career. Mm -hmm. Well, what I wonder as far as, like, where to go from here, right, is, like, you've sort of presented this as such of all this stuff happened, all this research happened, and then there was this very contentious period of time where there was this sort of fight between, you know, folks that wanted to develop this area for agriculture and folks that wanted to preserve it for raptors, and then all of a sudden this realization of, well, we don't have water, so it's basically a moot point. And that's 1981, and the end's not established as an NCA until 1993, right? So, yeah. like... Right. What yeah. happened in the intervening time period? And I assume you were still out there doing your raptor surveys we, every year. we did is that during, you know, and again, we had a couple things happen in 1981, is that Reagan took, you know, a change of administration. Mm -hmm. Reagan became president. James Watt became secretary of the interior. And history about James Watt, and, you know, it, it wasn't... Uh, like, see, he, he was totally different than Cecil Anders, and we can say that. And so the funding became rather sparse, uh, but we were able to maintain the, the monitoring effort. But the way we actually um, augmented a monitoring effort was that it just so happened that we there were some matters and issues that came up with... Uh, utilities that were working in or near the NCA and we partnered with them. One of them was the construction of the new power plant down at Swan Falls and the new spillway and a new road and everything like that. Well that precipitated a disturbance study that Tony Holtheisen did with with uh, the <clears throat> with Idaho Power. But that helped augment some of the prairie falcon monitoring work because for that research, we're looking at prairie falcon densities upstream and downstream from the dam and looking at productivity and, and during the, and, and at, before and after the construction, yada, yada, whole nine yards. Another one was with a company now called Pacific Corp, but at that time it was Pacific Power and Light. And I think with your involvement with Gateway, you've already heard about the work that we did back in the 1980s of assessing the colonization and utilization of a new transmission line by raptors and ravens. And we partnered with, well, like I said, Pacific Power and Light, now Pacific Corp. 
Another thing that we were involved in was they had problems with that blind. It went in and all of a sudden the ravens thought they liked it. Not only did they start colonization, colonizing the line, I mean, even before it was energized, they were nesting on those, on those uh, towers. But they liked it for roosting. We had one roost over, we call it, well, it was near initial point, that had 2,000 birds. Well, let's see, maximum capacity was 200 to 250 on the tower. So you could, 10 towers up and down. And um, ravens, uh, you know, they, uh, they defecate while they're roosting. <laughs> and so the uh, power company was very nervous with 200 ravens doing their thing above, above the uh, conductors. And uh, they didn't like that. So we were involved with assessing utilization, where the roofs were, and working with Pacific Corp in terms of either roost deterrence or using roost shield, uh, uh, excuse me, roost deterrence or shielding the, 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 uh, energy, the uh, conductors. So that's what we were doing. So we, we, during the 80s, we partnered with, with the utilities, but we're still able to continue the monitoring work. So that went through the 80s, and then in 1989, or the late 80s, the National Guard was wanting to build a maintenance center out on the end, what is OCTC now? <laughs> and the or I just call it the OTA, the Orchard Training Area, because that's what had been called forever. So they had to do an EIS. It became public that the Guard was out there. Well, the public all of a sudden woke up and said, what? Well. You know, the guard was very surprised because they'd been out there since 1953. And prior to them, the Army Air Corps was out there during World War II. And they're looking like, what's the deal here? Yeah, yeah, we, we've been here the whole time. <laughs> yeah, we've been here. We were here before you guys. I think that's an important, for the people that aren't familiar with the area, we've talked about the uniqueness of the NCA. And, and as far as I know, this is the only NCA that has a... National Guard training facility that is completely within completely. and predates the establishment yeah. of the NCA. And um, so when you started talking about the Guard, I think that's an important And thing. it's a huge area. Yeah. <laughs> a hundred, let's see, what is it? 130,000 acres, I think, something like that. So, you know, a significant portion of the NCA. Mm. Well, what had happened there was uh, because of the, the concerns, the, the Guard uh, and the BLM uh, partnered in the, the, what we call the BLM Ar Idaho Army National Guard Research Project. That was essentially a team, a large team effort, much like the, the research that was done in the 70s. And that's something I really didn't go into in the work in the 70s. We looked at the various facets of the ecosystem, all the way from the vegetation clear up to the Golden Eagles. And then we also did spatial work with radio telemetry and everything like that. We were doing similar work, but keep in mind that the technology was we had 20 years to to improve, and so we were doing similar type of work with with better technology. And what was good about that is that we had. Uh, limited resources with the with the particularly with doing the prairie falcon 
radio telemetry work in the in the 70s and with improved technology and triangulation and having adequate staffing I was very comfortable in the fact that the research that uh, the Green Falk with uh, John Marsliff et al did with radio telemetry of the Prairie Falcons actually confirmed the work that was done in the 70s. So that kind of made it a lot more substantial and solid because it had been really kind of baffling if it was entirely different, but it wasn't. And one of the things that, to put it in perspective, is that the Prairie Falcons, um, in, in both studies, utilize large home ranges. 130 square kilometers is basically a, a figure that we throw out. There's no territoriality. Communal ranges, they were all over the place uh, and they just tolerated each other. But they were flying out as far as 30 kilometers, you know, 25 to 30 kilometers from the, from the uh, canyon. And all you have to do is do 0.6 and you can get the idea of how many miles you know, 15 to 18 miles from the canyon. So that was good about the, the, the guard study and collaborating that. One of the things we also had the opportunity to do with that research, because prior to the guard project, Mother Nature came in and designed a very good pre-burn and post-burn study. At the time, we didn't really see what was happening, but prior to the early 1980s, that area basically didn't burn. They almost called it the, the asbestos area because it just didn't burn. It was a salt desert shrubs, they don't burn. And in 1981, I can remember well, I was coming back from Pinedale. I was on a grouse hunt, and I just come back and I stopped to check in at the office, and I got a hold of Karen. And she told me that 30,000 acres of the asbestos area burnt the night before. This is on Monday morning, so it burnt over the weekend. That's just baffled everybody. And that started a five, basically six-year period where it was exceptional moisture in the winter. And these, this area just burnt right and left. And by the time the smoke cleared, not to use a cliche or a pun, by the time the smoke cleared, about half the shrub habitat was gone. Then, in the, from 19, the mid-1980s to mid-1990s, it didn't burn again. So with the guard project and the, and, the money, and the finances for being able to continue the work, and you know the monitoring work that we had done prior to that, we were able to do a pretty good study of assessing the effects of fire on golden eagles. And so, so the guard project lasted from uh, the early 90s, basically 90 to 94 were the field years, and then the, the, the report came out in 96. It's just been a period of time, uh, starting when, the, you know, when I first came here as a graduate student, that there's been these questions that pop up, these management dilemmas, if you want to call them, or management challenges where there's been this need for information. So, what happened after the guard project? Because, you know, two main things that came out of that guard report. One was looking at the 
you know, compatibility in assessing the effects of military activity. But the big one that came out was the effects of fire that precipitated out of that guard project. And so that started the focus of the research into how do we restore this habitat in terms of restoring back, and the goal was to restore it back to the 1970 levels. It would be the late 1990s. So for about the last 20 years, has been a heavy focus on the approach to take and the best way to, re, you know, to restore that habitat and in, in terms of habitat rehabilitation. And it is a challenge, an ex incredible challenge out there because down around Bruno, you're looking at a six to eight inch precip zone and it is extremely difficult to, to set up seedings and get them to go. But the, you know, the, the work by the BLM and now there's a lot, you know, the work by the Snake River Field Station, they're doing some incredible stuff. And also I should say not only the field station, but the, the Forest and Rangeland Ecosystem Science Center, which the field station is part of, has been doing a tremendous amount of work. Trying to come up with ways to restore habitat in these very difficult arid regions. It's just an, it's a real challenge. But at the same time, we've been able to continue, you know, the work piecemeal, and I should say piecemeal because, you know, with, with the change in focus, the raptor monitoring has waned in the last, let's see, 15 years, we say. There was, in terms of the BLM, we implemented a, a resource management plan in uh, 2008. So there was an effort to do prairie falcon work in the, well, that was when Steve came in 2002 and 2003. But since then, the monitoring work on raptors with the exception of specific studies, I mean, Jim Beltop has been very successful of continuing the work with burrowing owls and he's found a lot of interesting things. Um, there hadn't been any work done on prairie falcons since 2003. And so I know that there's an interest in doing it, but um, one of the things that's been hampering that effort is it's costly. It is very expensive. Now, eagle work has been done, and we haven't missed a year. There's been certain years when yours truly and, and a few other volunteers kept the fabric together, and the BLM was good about providing a rig, but it's not like a Victor Mature movie where you have a cast of thousands, where you need, with prairie falcons, that, you know, in, in 2003, there were four people. That's or six, because we were able to split into two climbing crews. Okay, because, you well, you had the barn owl work, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. So, yeah, it... Four to six, but with eagles, you know, a full time one full time person could handle it. And in, in those years, we up until 2009, we were able to utilize helicopter of the BLM and, and things of that nature. You have the designation of the withdrawal. How do we get to the NCA? Okay, oh, I've talked about all the research and everything's been done, monitoring and stuff like that, but legislation. Blair Larocco, what, what, 
I'll tell you what a little I know. One of the things that really was needed to be done, uh, and, I, and, and I credit Bill Burnham with the Paragon Fund for a lot of this. And Bill uh, was a, he, he was very good at bringing people together and uh, working through the political stuff. He could, you know, he didn't make a, a difference to him if you're a Democrat or Republican, whatever. You know, he had a focus of what needed to be done. And so what they started was a local group that used to meet uh, for lunch. And that was over where our field, near our field station, there was a place called Chi-Chi's, which was a Mexican restaurant. And it was kind of interesting because people kind of coined them as the Chi-Chi's for a lunch bunch. But be it as it may, they just casually talked about stuff and issues. You know, Morley Nelson, they had BSU involvement, uh, National Guard, all, as many stakeholders as they could think of involved in this group. Republican, Democrat, farmer, uh, conservationist, whatever. Everybody involved that they could think of and worked out. And basically, you know, I wasn't that close to it, but I knew that they were meeting constantly for a long period of time. I'm not exactly sure when it started, but I, I know that it was moving in the late 80s. And then finally, you know, basically, it was, I think, a combination of things. Work out the, and the wrinkles, work out the problems, the issues, everything of that nature. I know that, you know, there, there were stakeholders out there that didn't want to be, if the legislation went in, they didn't want to be left out in the, in the, in, in the cold. So, and also I think they were waiting for the right time, the right mix in the, in the Idaho delegation, the right mix in Congress or whatever. So basically, we, we fast forward to 1993. And we got Larry LaRocco uh, in, as, as a District 1 representative. He introduces the legislation, and it gets passed. So the NCA is established. But I guess I kind of glossed, and, 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 and I'm just trying to think of those that, who all was directly involved in that? Because unfortunately, Bill Burnham passed away in 2006 or five, one of those. It was bringing the stakeholders, much like what Simpson did with the, you know, Boulder White Clouds, uh, and, and, and just bringing all stakeholders together and, you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth, working this out, because without having stakeholders on board, it doesn't go. That's basically what happened. So, you know, we got the NCA established in 93, and uh, the guard project finished in 94. And then, uh, like I say, the, the focus in terms of management and I think even politics was, holy mackerel, our area is burning up. <laughs> we got to do something. And it continued to burn. Because like I mentioned with that um, Golden Eagle study, you know, we utilized the information up to 94. Well, it was 96 and 97 I, I was sick because all of that prime sagebrush area around I, initial point went up in smoke and it was just sad.
because it, the, the conditions were just right for a devastating fire. You know, it was high winds and everything of that nature, but two years in a row, boom, boom, boom. You know, that just, just changed everything to the point of focusing on restoration and, uh, you know, implementing management work. And also, beginning in the, in, uh, in the early 2000s, is, is starting to develop, you know, a solid and long-term management uh, plan, which is then the resource management plan that they have for the NCA. What I wonder is, I mean, you talked about the important study that was done in the early 90s related to fire and the impact that fire has on Mm -hmm. these ecosystems and and the impact it has on the raptor populations, I assume as well, is a key component of that. Maybe as like a starting point, I mean, I'm wondering, one of the first things you said when you talked about, when you were talking about when you started Mm -hmm. this research um, on raptors in the NCA was how pristine this, this sagebrush ecosystem was, right? Well, more pristine. More pristine than it is now, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. Right? I mean, in perspective. Yeah, and it, I mean, like like now, at least us, right? I mean, those of those who sort of, you know, uh, work in the biological world, you know, here in the West, there's a lot of awareness about mm-hmm like what this, the nature of this issue with fire in sagebrush ecosystems and the role of cheatgrass um, and how that affects fire return intervals and, and all that stuff, right? Was there any awareness of this issue back in the 70s when you started? I mean, was this a concern at all at that point? Was it even on the radar? It was changing. And again, it, at least, I'm gonna put it in, in, in the perspective of the NCA, it wasn't burning. So there was not that much of a concern. The barbie was a certain degree of awareness. I think it was actually time working because if we go back and see, one of the other things that we did work on is we had Dana Quinney that was working for us. Uh, actually, she was on contract from the, with the University of Idaho. And her interest was dealing with history and grazing history and the invasion of exotic aliens. And she, she put out some good publications in terms of establishing the historical aspect. Cheatgrass, and I think mainly cheatgrass, was first identified in southwest Idaho, which is not, you know, pretty much, you could say, the NCA. was first identified in 1900. We go to the 60s. So you've got basically 60 years. Well, about as much time as I've been here. Well, essentially, you needed for that, in my opinion, for that those exotics to take over, so to speak, or to to increase. And then you got to have, you know, the right set of conditions. Not the NCA, you know, you have all this, you know, I noticed when I first came here, even though you had this nice sea of sagebrush, but you looked in the inner spaces and you had cheat grass. So cheat was there. Mm-hmm. And I think, in my opinion, it was just, cheat was just waiting for the right time. And that was in the early 1980s when we had these super moisture years. And it just ignited. So, you know, that is, in my opinion, and, and, you know, the evolution of how we get, got to mm-hmm. where we are now. Mm-hmm. 
But what, you know, and so you did that, that study, well, right? Like what, I mean, I, what, what I want to know is like, what did you find out? Like, what is the impact of these fires on specifically the oh, raptor populations? Okay. Basically, we've got a combination of things. So we established that golden eagles do prefer jackrabbits. We came out with a subsequent paper in uh, 1997 of looking at jackrabbit abundance and weather in relation to golden eagle reproduction. And golden eagle reproduction was closely tied to jackrabbit abundance. You have a decline in the jackrabbit population, you have a decline in the proportion of pairs laying eggs, which is subsequently a lower reproduction. What we found at that same time with looking at prairie falcons and ground squirrels is that we found, number one, prairie falcons were pretty much of a specialist on ground squirrels. No other prey species attributed more than 4% of the biomass of prairie falcon diet. It was ground squirrels, ground squirrels, and more ground squirrels. And so basically we established the same thing, the close relationship of ground squirrel abundance and prairie falcon reproduction. One of the other things that we found is that you eliminate sagebrush, the cover of sagebrush, so goes the rabbits. We found with, with ground squirrels, you could burn an area and you have a lot of cheatgrass, is that in good moisture years, those cheatgrass areas produce a lot of ground squirrels. In drought years, zippo. And so what we found, and this was the work that B. Van Horn did, with, that was part of the guard project, is that she showed that the native shrub habitats were more stable. You had less oscillation of those prey species, even though in the disturbed areas you'd have a high abundance of, of ground squirrels through the ceiling, but you have a bad year and it tanks. With the native range, or you know, with the, with the native shrub habitats, you had the less, you know, the, it, these oscillations weren't as abrupt, weren't as, uh, as uh, you know, as as bad as what you'd see with disturbed habitats. Mm -hmm. Now let's back up to eagles. This is something that we found in the recent past, and this really emphasizes the the value of long-term monitoring. And that's why I was out there driving my own vehicle and and working on my own time just to make sure that we didn't just like in 1972 couldn't stand it. Got to get down there and ban those eagles. One of the things that I kept seeing is that we got some of these pairs, and I think Steve saw it as well. They're pumping out kids, and it's the most trashed out place I've ever seen. They're pumping kids out. What in the heck is going on? So that's when I uh, was, you know, looking around to, to see, you know, if I can partner with somebody, and that's when I partnered with Julie Heath at Boise State, and we did that dietary change study of golden eagles, and Man, my heart fell to my socks. I found out my regal golden eagles were eating coots. <laughs> coots! <laughs> but I'll tell you, they're just like everybody else. They've got to make a living. But they were able. And this kind of made me do, you know, rethink about golden eagles and how I thought that they, you know, I know that prairie falcons were specialists. We did that paper with, uh, in, um, in the Journal of Animal Ecology. And what we showed is that 
prairie falcons were very specialized, and red tails were pretty much generalist, and eagles were golden eagles were in the middle. Well, golden eagles did demonstrate that they're able to, to shift, and you know, we we still the jury's out as to whether it's a long-term ability. You know, as a, a, a shift is going to be the way to have long-term stability, or whether there's a price that comes with it. And Julie is really looking at it hard because she's, you know, talked about the increase in the Columbia form, you know, pigeons, rock, uh, you know, rock pigeons, and the transmission of, of uh, trichomoniasis and that, you know, the loss of young and, and uh, decreased reproduction from trichomoniasis. So, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch and everything comes with a cost. But that's some of the work that we, you know, that I find was really interesting is that these eagles have been able so far to make a living. Now, one of the things that we have shown with the long-term work is that in going back to the eagles and, again, being able to do the long-term monitoring is that Technically, the and I would say from a practical standpoint, the carrying capacity has decreased. When I was uh, doing my graduate work, there was, you know, we had 35 pairs, or these are territories occupied in the NCA, and now we're down to about 23. However, this is baffling Julie. It's just, it's driving her nuts, is that you've got this decrease in you know the occupancy, but yet estimated and counted number of young fledge has not shown any 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 uh, uh, declining trend. It, it's not as high as it used to be, but it's within the uh, range of hi the historical range. Couple things. One is that the one the territories that went out of the picture were the lower quality territories. And the ones that are still occupied and pump, pumping kids were historically the most productive and still are. And that's one of the things that came out of that Eagle Fire paper is that one of the predicting factors as to whether you would have a fire and who would be faring okay was the success rate of that territory prior to the burn. If it was a low-producing or low-success territory, you can be guaranteed it's, got, it's going to be gone. That was one of the things we noticed with that fire paper is that in the mid-'80s, productivity of the eagles tanked. I mean, it was the lowest. We had an estimated production, I think, in '86 of five, five young in that whole NCA. You look at that fire paper, and immediately after the fire, you got a low reproduction. 11 years after the fire, it's right up to where it was pre-burned. That has a lot of implications. One might say that it took that time, but they started, the Eagles started to adapt, to readjust. Where are we getting our next meal? So kind of interesting, we had a territory that, after the fires, did not produce one young. This is the Pole 369 territory. It didn't produce any young for at least 10 years or more. Zippo. And recently, it's been one of the more productive territories. 
And so we're finding a lot of interesting things in terms of how these raptors are reacting to this environmental change. And I know, Jim, you know, Jim, Jim Beltoff with, with the work on the burrowing owls has seen a lot of interesting stuff. I think that really speaks to the importance of, of long-term monitoring. If, if you didn't have 50 years of data, you, you don't it. see those peaks and valleys. You don't see um, how things are changing over, over time. Um, if you do a two-year study every 10 years, you, you get a screenshot of what happened in that very short time and, and you can't put the puzzle pieces together like you can with 50 years of continuous data, which is amazing for almost any species that's been monitored. Yeah. Um, I can't think of that many species that have a, a continuous data set that spans 50 years. Where the data set goes back, not for every territory, but it goes back <clears throat> beginning in 1966 with the work that Gary Heckman did. And see, that was interesting as well. Behind the scenes in that whole thing, I think, and I wasn't there, but I think it was Morley Nelson, because in the, in the 60s, in the early 60s, well, well during the 60s and in the, into the 70s, they were shooting eagles all over the place. And one place that they used to just completely devastate those birds was in the Trans-Pecos uh, in New Mexico, the Trans-Pecos of Texas and New Mexico, a lot of shooting and uh, a, a lot of persecution. And Walter Spofford came out with a, a paper that was, uh, it was actually a report he did for the Audubon Society. And that paper pretty much painted the picture that all eagles migrated down to southern latitudes and primarily in the Trans-Pecos and the New Mexico and all that persecution was affecting the eagles of North America. That really precipitated funding for the eagle work and that's how my graduate project came out of that whole that whole movement. There was funding to you know to start inventorying eagles and so basically I think it was based on Morley's familiarity with the Snake River, that Gary Hickman set up his survey area to go from, basically he went from Twin Falls to Malheur. That started in, in 66, so we have data for some of the pairs to 1966. But obviously we don't have, you know, as we talked about, moving back to Prairie Falcons, those survey efforts stopped in 2003, right? Well, basically, yeah. And what we had, the intensive efforts where we looked at the entire canyon or sampled the entire mm -hmm. canyon, was essentially these windows of time when we had major projects. We have the 70s, mm -hmm. we have the 90s, mm -hmm. and then we have the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And in between, there was some survey work of survey stretches, but not, in, you know, not enough that where you could say the population in, in the canyon is X, Y, Z. Sure. sure. I guess I just wonder, like, you know, you, you just explained these really interesting things that are happening with golden eagles about how as their, their preferred sort of source of prey, jackrabbits, you know, declines, they've found other, like, they've, they've shown to be quite adaptable, They're right? Way more adaptable than I thought. Right, exactly. But we, you only know that because those, you know, the surveys, the Golden Eagle surveys yep. continued. Uh, what I wonder is, like, 
Is it possible that something like that is happening with prairie falcons and we just aren't aware? This is a Is it possible that prairie falcon populations have declined significantly since 2003 and we just have no idea? This is a concern of, of certain people. And I think when you talk with Karen, she'll probably elaborate on this, is that we don't know. Uh, I've often said that if, if Luca Brasi put a gun to my head and asked me how the prairie falcons are doing, I don't think I'd be here anymore. I can't answer it. I think from a subjective standpoint of being, you know, out in the canyon and walking around, there seems to be, you know, a lot of prairie falcons, but for somebody to completely enumerate it, we can't say. One of the things that, that precipitated the work in the 2000s is a paper that we published in 1999 that took us to the end of the guard project, but also we had the survey stretches and then we were able to replicate the surveys, these short survey stretches in 97 and it showed a possible decline. And that caught the interest of the, of the uh, manager of the NCA and at that point in time they had enough money because of the funding for the RMP that he was able to address that question because it was an important question for the RMP. Are the prairie falcons declining? And if they are, what can we do? So that funded that. And what we found is that particularly in 2002, that was the year before Steve came, we had the highest number of prairie falcons in the canyon. And I think 207 of number of, of occupied territory. So at least it helped to say that, yeah, our prairie falcons are doing well. If we had to do the same thing now, we, we can't say. That's why, you know, I, I can say this, a BLM is interested and they want to get it. It's just, my God, it's not cheap. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an important point we sort of touched on earlier that uh, a one or two person crew can survey the entire <clears throat> NCA uh, for Golden Eagles, um, but it, it took a four to six person crew to complete a prairie falcon survey. And I think for those that aren't familiar with, with raptors and ecology, what's the difference? Why, why is it so labor intensive for prairie falcons? Yeah, well with Golden Eagles, uh, and I'll talk about the difference in terms of monitoring. Golden Eagles, first of all, they're, they're, they're widely spaced. Uh, even at their height, uh, when I was doing my graduate work, that's when we had the, the most number enumerated. We're still looking, and I'll put it in English terms, about two miles between uh, nests that were being used. Even it ranged. I mean, I had one pair or two pairs that were half a mile apart, but it was on the average about two miles. Well, the prairie falcons, I, as I mentioned earlier, 600 meters, and you've got them just piled in there. And Golden Eagles, you can fire up a helicopter and you can survey them by this. We got these big conspicuous nests and it's not a cakewalk, but it's a lot easier. And you can come back and survey on the ground if you can't see anything with the helicopter. So you can, that's why Steve says you can do it with a, you know, particularly a helicopter, you can do it with easily with one or two people. With Prairie Falcons, helicopter surveys are useless. That's totally my opinion. We did use it early on because of the you know prairie falcons uh, confronting the helicopter to give you an idea. Hey, we got from a relative standpoint, we got something going here. But to really enumerate them, you can't. What you have to do is we started out in the earlier years of just walking the entire canyon, 
and we found that uh, it was more effective if we used the point counts, where when Steve was working with us, you know, you had each person was assigned a two-kilometer stretch of the canyon, and they utilized whatever observation points that they found that where they could see the cliff the best, and they watched it for two hours. Well, you add up both sides of the canyon, and you, you, you're only using, looking at one side. You're not looking at both. So you take two sides of the canyon, you got 80 miles, and you multiply that by two hours. It, now you can see that in 2002, I think we had 10. And, and another thing, some people have asked, well, can you do this for, uh, with volunteers, with citizen scientists? Steve can attest, <laughs> sending people out in some parts like CJ Strike to climb over those boulders in the metal-infested areas and set for two hours, you might get somebody to go down to where it's easily to walk to, like Celebration Park or something like that. But to go and strike, uh, you got to pay them, and or it's got to be there's got to be some kind of return on this, whether it's a graduate study or uh, because to, to take the regular Joe citizen or. Uh, Jolene citizen and put them out there <laughs> that's cruel unusual punishment and so that kind of you know uh, we've utilized volunteers to, to, to go and check on an eagle nest you got a big nest you got a OP where they can see it they can drive to it or walk to it easily yeah you can do that but as far as uh, the having crews you you got to pay them Mm. Then you've got transportation. In order to do that prairie falcon survey adequately, we, in 2002 and 2003, we had a boat. And that's, you know, and Steve can attest, if you did it without a boat, it'd even add more to the time involved mm. in getting around. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a labor-intensive. Negative aspects of it is that uh, it's costly. Mm -hmm. Now, what we did in 2003 is that we did a sampling approach, which reduced the amount of workforce, like Steve was saying, four to six people. And I think you could do it with four, because they were, they were also doing barn owl work. Success is you got at least one young that made it to fledging age. Productivity, how many young? Now we found that there's a, the correlation coefficient is something like 0.98 it's real high between success and the actual count. So by being able to use success, that's even reducing the amount of people. But mm -hmm. still, we ran the numbers for, for Joe uh, Walton, and it's still pricey. <laughs> One other distinction to make to, to fill in the public is we mentioned how big and conspicuous golden eagle nests are, and, and you can see them from a helicopter. Uh, and sometimes a prairie falcon will take over a, a raven or a red tail nest, but oh, yeah. but in general they're cavity nesters. So oh, I forgot. Yeah. The yeah. you mentioned how labor intensive it was. The the protocol that that I remember, it, if you saw a bird go into a cavity and, and you thought that it was it was the nesting cavity, the only way that we could say for sure is to do a two a one hour observation. Yeah. So a bird goes into the cavity, you've got it in your spotting scope, and you don't take your eye off the hole. Yeah. for an hour and if that bird doesn't come out well you can assume that it's it's the nest and, and for a citizen scientist if, if you put them out there and say hey that bird goes into the hole you have one eye in that scope for an hour you and as soon as you 
sneeze or, or wipe your nose or, or, you know, settle your contact or something and a bird flies by, mm, you're like, you don't is know. that my bird um, yeah. or not? Yeah, yeah like, I forgot that. Yeah, there's a few things that, you know, the fact that prairie falcons nest in the cavities, you can do, like Steve was saying, you either watch for an hour or you climb. Mm. Which is going to take more, <laughs> more labor. And I'll tell you what, I have done the climbing aspect to locate the, uh, the first time to find the cavity. An hour is cakewalk. Yeah. <laughs> is a cakewalk. I mean, geez, I've, I've remembered climbing and you think you know and you go down and you climb down that cliff and you're off. You can't see it. Then you got to go back up, Jumar back up, set the rope over and come back down. But, you know, we usually have a spotter. But even with that, you're off sometimes. And then you got to do it all over. And at the same time, you got this prairie falcon that's upset and everything. Much better to just assume mm -hmm. that if they don't come out of that hole, we call it good. Mm -hmm. But still, labor intensive. You mm -hmm. add an hour onto mm -hmm. that person's two hours stamp because particularly if they see it go into a hole at the end of their two hours, they just added another hour onto their... Uh, under their uh, observation time. Mm -hmm. And so you can see where it adds up. Now, another species that's not, uh, that's big and, uh, and, and, and has a conspicuous nest is ferruginous hawks. And you can see the, the ferruginous hawk work has been reinstilled because it can be done with students and volunteers and particularly with the platforms. Uh, now, if you're going to be doing a, an enumeration of the population, that's a little more intensive because you not only you can check the platforms, but then you have to check every piece of uh, uh, real estate in a, whatever your sample area is. So, um, but they're at least you know conspicuous and big. Mm -hmm. So, so the last question I can think of, just to kind of wrap all this up, is. I'm just curious to hear sort of your thoughts on the future of this region contained within the NCA and the species that are there, right? Because, I mean, you know, one of the first things you said was how dramatic the changes, the landscape mm -hmm. changes that you've seen, you know, in the 50 years that you've been working in the NCA. Those changes are going to continue, right? I mean, the climate's changing, um, oh, yeah. and that affects all these different landscape issues. It affects cheatgrass invasion. It affects sagebrush. I mean, I guess I'm just looking for your thoughts, like generally, on are you hopeful for the future of the NCA and the ability of it to continue to maintain these high densities of raptors or not? You know, given what I've seen in the last 50 years and... Given what's happened with this earth since the, the big molten ball cooled down, but there will be something out there. And that there will be change, but there will be species that will change with it. Or what is not favorable for one species might be favorable for another. So there will be something in terms of certain species of raptors flourishing and other species not doing so well. Will the prairie falcon survive? Based on what we saw in 2002 and 2003, they were doing rather well. However, you know, given what we found with the ground squirrels, that the habitat is less stable in, in these disturbed areas where you have cheatgrass and the, the annual forbs, 
And if we have the changing climate to be drier, I, I am concerned there. Because whatever the ground squirrel does demographically, or from you know an abundance standpoint, that's going to reflect on how the prairie falcon does. Based on subjective observations, just roaming around the canyon, doing the eagle work, there seems to be a fair number of prairie falcons, and so they seem to be doing, from a subjective standpoint, rather well. And from my wandering around in the desert that I think it was like last year, and I think this year as well, there's squirrels everywhere. I think it was this spring, I was out, squirrels everywhere. That seems to be positive. But yeah, the bottom line is that there'll be changes, you know, whether they'll be good or whether they'll be bad, that's up to the individual, but there will be a change, and we can expect that. And so we do, that's why I think that We've got good people working in the NCA, and they're going to continue to do it, and they're going to continue to investigate. There's always that question, how well are things doing, and people are going to be looking at it. The bottom line is understanding the value of long-term monitoring work. And that's kind of hard to sell to the agency people and the politicians who a long-term horizon, in their view, is the next election, four years or six years. And when you start talking to people about 100-year horizons, they just, oh, jeez, they're not going to be around. <laughs> so. That was Michael Cochert, researcher and environmentalist with nearly five decades of raptor experience. His research helped lead to the nation's first conservation area established on the basis of species habitat requirements. If you would like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreynca.partnership.org slash dedication points. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's show was produced by myself, your host, Gregory Haddock. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle. <laughs>